So I, uh, I get really nervous with lecterns. So uh, last week I couldn't get the chair out here, so I had it. But I don't know, I feel kind of uh, like I'm lecturing. I like to kind of just sit down and hang out with you guys. So that's uh, kind of what I do t typically. Sorry, uh, uh, I know that uh, it's such a beautiful lectern too. So I know that, uh, sorry, Andrew, I don't see you here, but uh, it's beautiful. I'm not, uh, you know. Um, we just heard uh, uh, Greg, I don't know if uh, everybody's met Greg. He was here just a moment ago. He just had word that his mother had passed away, so he had to go and then take care of that. But uh, So keep him in prayer. It wasn't too terribly unexpected, but um, it's never a good time. So he had to go and uh, begin to take care of that. And I'm sure his heart is aching even now as he's driving. So please, please, please keep him in prayer. We know that death was never intended to be on this earth. And uh, as we see, even Jesus wept as he saw the, the consequences of sin that's in this world. So we weep with those who weep today. So let's just pray. Lord, we do uh, thank you that you are a God of life. You are a God that desires for us to have life. And you desired it so much you gave your only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And and I don't know for certain um, where Greg's mother was in reference to you, but I pray that she is a believer and she is now in your arms. And I pray that this, this opportunity for Greg to share and speak with siblings and others that are around to share the good news of, of your life and what you have for us and, and these things. And and we ask as we study your word that uh, it impacts us and, and makes us a little bit more like you as we study these things. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We are in Romans and we're picking up in chapter 6. Chapter 6 of Romans. I'm being a little bit ambitious today, so please bear with me. I'm going to try to go through 6 and 7 today. So if we're here for three hours, just feel free to hit me over the head with a can or something as I dwell on. But we are uh, remembering that Romans chapter 1 really goes into and talks about the depravity of man and the downward spiral of sin. There's Andrew, so I was just telling you, I, nothing wrong with your lectern. It's just beautiful, but I just feel uncomfortable behind them. So I didn't want him to be offended, you know, oh, he doesn't like my lectern. You know, that's not, not at all. It's beautiful. But uh, So anyways, chapter 1 is the depravity of man and that downward spiral. Uh, chapter 2 is talking about how God is just in uh, judging men in their sin. We can't stand before God and ever say uh, that we didn't deserve what we would get. And both Jew and Gentile, whether you were born as a Jew or a non-Jew, God is just in judging man for the sin. And then chapter 3 is this transition from the justice of sin and the grace that comes from faith. And then chapter 4, we get that example, that beautiful example of Abraham, who was faithful, or rather he was found righteous before God because he believed God and God's promises, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. The promises that he would have the descendants as many as the stars in the heaven and as many as the sands in the seashore. And so he's given us that example. In chapter 5, we covered last week, if you weren't here you pick up the tape, as they say. No, uh, go online and, and listen to it. And uh, hear about it. It's, it's about justification. Just as if I had never sinned. It's that moment in time where we say, I realize my sinfulness. I want to turn away from that. I accept and I believe 
that God paid for my sin. It's a moment of time where we are then righteous before God. It is a finished work. Nothing we can say or do above and beyond that. The work of Jesus Christ can do more than what is done at that instant in time. And when we talk about justification, there's nothing that we do to gain justification or or to get a better right standing before God. Paul goes into that that whole beautiful you know uh, section there at the end of chapter five and and talking about how you know the the more sinful we are because we can get into a point of they say well how can God save me because I'm so sinful it's like the the more sin that's in your life the the more grace that's there and grace abounds. And then we get into this, this transition there in chapter 6, where it's not about justification, just as if I had never sinned, but rather he starts to deal with this idea that people can fall trapped to, that says, well, if grace abounds more, if I sin more, then why don't I sin more? And he deals with that beginning in chapter 6, as we began to talk about it last week. And really, when you start talking about this idea that that grace is sufficient for all sins, past, present, and future, there are those that would say, you can't preach that to your congregation because then they're going to go and live lives as uh, however they want. It's like, yeah, that's the idea. Is we should be free to live lives as we want. But the idea is that our desires have been changed as we have been accepted Jesus Christ and in the, in the, in the Holy Spirit is living inside of us. I can sin as much as I want, but the desire for sin should be taken away. And as we start to see in chapter 6, we begin to talk about this idea of sanctification. And sanctification is a bit different. It's a continuous work in a believer. So if you're here today, I'm kind of looking over, I think I know a lot of the faces here. If you're here today and you haven't been justified, if you haven't turned your life over to Christ and said, you are my Lord and my Savior, I, I trust in you, and I believe that what you say is true, and you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you're not like that, then this chapter 6 and 7 isn't going to mean anything to you. So right now, in the quietness of your own heart, accept the Lord in your heart, and then you can listen to the rest, and you'll be all good. Okay, chapter 6. He says there in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And then in verse 3, he begins to talk about what it means to walk as a Christian. And he starts to deal with something that I think we have to start to get a grasp on. Because we fall into a trap of legalism where we go into the law. And what does the law says? Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. It says no to this, no to that, no to that. And Paul begins to say, it's not about no, 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 as every parent knows how many times you have to say no a day to kids. No, no, no. He begins to use a different word. He says, no, 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 no. He says, this is the secret. It's not about no, 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 but no, K-N-O-W. You need to know some things and hold on to them as truths of what God's, God is. I believe God and it's counted to you for righteousness. Do we believe God and his word? Well, here's some things you need to know. As he begins in verse 3, the first of the six, or you could argue seven, knows that he tells us that we should have. He says in verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
So the first no is to know that you have a new identity in Christ. New identity in Christ. You are no longer sons of Satan, which is what we were before. We don't like to say that. We don't like to believe that. We were sons and slaves of Satan, and now we're sons of God. And our position, when we're justified, our position changes. We are no longer sons of Satan. We've died to that. We are now alive in Christ and sons of God. We have new parents. That's cool, huh? Know our position. Know our new identity in Christ. And that's the picture of baptism that Paul talks about this here in continuing in verse 4. He says, therefore, and picture this baptism, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, which is what you often hear in a baptism ceremony, right? Buried together with him in the likeness of his death. So the old man, the, the who you were, is now dead like Christ in, in death. Now Christ was there three days and three nights. We don't quite do that. We, you know, Some people maybe need to go down, maybe down a little longer than others to remind us you're dead, okay? Just a couple more seconds to make sure you realize you're dead. And then newness of life, right? As, as we're coming up, we're now alive in Christ, born again into the family of God. Peter, in his writings, talks about the importance of baptism with our conscience. Because we, we keep reminding ourselves of our sinful past and the things, and does God still love me? And it's a struggle for young believers, or I should say immature, because you could be a believer for 50 years and still be very immature. You still struggle, does really God love me? And, and you kind of go through this, and, and Peter says, that baptism, you're, that's dead. You're alive. You're a son of God. Remember this, and you should have a clear conscience and be able to sleep well on your pillow, knowing that God has forgiven you for all sins, past, present, and future. And that's what baptism does. If you are here today and you have never been baptized, that's the first step in this idea of sanctification. And I often tell people, don't ask God for a second step <laughs> until you do the first step. It's not important to salvation, but it's really important to sanctification, to understand an obedience to Christ and say, I am going to show an outward sign of an inward change. I've, been, I've died, and now I'm a new life in Christ, and I have been born again into the family of God. So that's the first thing he says. Know your identity in Christ. You're not sons of Satan. You don't have Satan telling you what to do as a parent. You have God now as your parent telling you what to do and what not to do. And that's a different uh, picture that we have. So baptism is important. The second no is in verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That's not old man like my dad. No, he's old, the old person. Old man was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. So our second no is no, our old man was crucified with Christ. Right, Galatians 2.20. Uh, you know, I was crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ in me. Our old man, our old ways, all that, it was on the cross. When he was on the cross, our old man, our old nature, is to be pinned there as well and to be pinned to the cross, done away with. And that 
picture of done away with, that word in the Greek is talking about being paralyzed, is inoperable, just sits there and just has nothing to do. And it says we should no longer be slaves to sin. And he'll pick up on this a little bit later on the chapter about this idea of slavery. But in verse 7, he says, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Praise the Lord. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So if, if we died with Christ on the cross, then we can believe that we're also raised with him. We, we have new life. We, we didn't stay dead. Jesus didn't stay dead. So he says, if you believe that your body has been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We're also alive and we live with him. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, continuing on the same idea of knowing, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. There's no more death for us. Death no longer has dominion over him, Jesus, for the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, he's saying just like that for us, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says you should reckon yourselves as you know that your old body has been crucified with Christ and you've been given that new life, you should reckon yourself. Now, my wife comes from Texas, so she would read this and think you're saying, well, I reckon I should do that then. You know, that's a cool southern kind of term. That's not what that means. It's a reckoning, as you would say, if you're an accountant. You say, I'm, I'm checking all the balances and, and reconciling it. He says, you should reconcile and realize that it has been paid, that it is done. And you reckon it, you reconcile it in your mind that it is it is done. It is finished. It's an accounting term. And what's beautiful about this is this idea of reckoning this and, and, and knowing this has nothing to do with understanding it. You can reconcile it and you don't have to know all the, de- de- the details of all the numbers. You just have to know that this number and this number match. It's reconciled. You're good. You don't have to know all the details. Do you ever get confused about things that you see? You know, you hear about DNA and you're like, Oh, there's these four letters, and they and they make up the they come up, and they can make any part of your body and new cells. And I look at that, and I think I don't know anything about all that. I don't know how it all works, but I reckon it be true because it is right, and it happens. Or electricity is just kind of baffling, right? It's like, does the electrons flow through the wire? Is it the the holes that the wire goes back? Is it and how does all that work? And how do they store up these little? It's hard to picture at the molecular level these things, but I turn the switch on nonetheless, and it works. In the same way, we don't know all the things that happen in the spiritual realm, but we can believe it to be true and reconcile it in our, in our lives and know that our old man has been crucified with Christ and it's been done away with, it's been paralyzed, it's, and we're no longer slaves to sin. And he says, uh, but we're alive in Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but grace. As we look at this, we just think, okay, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It's dead. It's gone. 
but it sure feels alive. It sure seems like it's alive. Now, unfortunately, there's not a, a really nice way of an, having an analogy to this without getting a few emails, you know, john.grazeatoracle.com, uh, you know, offending some people. But I just think about this when you if, you, if you're from the country and you're going to have a chicken for dinner, you don't go to Woolies and pick up a chicken. You take a chicken from the, chin, the chicken house and you do what you do to it to have it on the dinner table. And what is often done is the head is removed in different ways. And what often happens is that chicken will continue to run around with no head. That's where we get that term. It's like a chicken with a head cut off. Continues to run around. And I had heard this story about these three boys that had a, a chicken that was going through this. And that chicken was running around. And one of the boys said, that chicken is alive. And he's like, uh, no, I think that chicken's dead. I and mean, I see a head over here. That chicken's dead. And the third boy said, I reckon... He's dead. He just doesn't know it yet. And that's how we are, right? We're running around. You know, our old body's still running around. It's dead. It doesn't know it yet. And we just have to realize it's dead. And even though it's still kicking and screaming and doing and, and fighting us, as we'll see, Paul fights with this and how he deal, deals with that. It's dead. It's dying. And we should see that and, and reckon that to be true and say, yeah, it's still kicking, but it's, it's on its way down. And all we have to do is look in the mirror a few times uh, as time progresses. And I just celebrated a birthday, and I'm like, okay, yep, it's, it's dying, all right, this old body. It's on its way out. And it's, I love that verse 14, if you don't have it underlined. It's this idea of sin is not going to have dominion over you. It doesn't rule over you. You now are under the law of grace. Grace is over you. The law of graces will see more details there. And our instruments, our bodies, our members, they're instruments of God. This idea of sanctification is being holy and set apart like the instruments in the temple were set apart. There wasn't anything special about this utensil. It was holy because God set it apart and made it holy. And when, uh, you know, in, in Babylon, when uh, Belshazzar said, bring the items of the temple in here, we're going to celebrate the gods of gold and the gods of silver, and God's like, that's enough. I'm done with you. Writing on the wall. You've been weighed. Enough is enough. Instruments were set aside as holy, not because there was anything special, but God separated them. And we are those instruments. And we should see ourselves as that. No longer instruments that Satan uses for evil, but we're instruments of God to be used for good and for his glory. It's a beautiful thing as we can know that that's to be true. The third no we begin to see here. What then, verse 15, is, as Paul begins to uh, just warn people about abusing this, this truth. But he says, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know, and this is the third no here, to whom you present yourselves or your instruments to uh, uh, present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience living to righteousness. He says, know this, we are slaves. We don't really like that term. Oh, I'm not a slave, I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want. Really? Well, tell that to the company that has your mortgage on your, your house or your car. It's like you're, you're slaves. To Tell that to your stomach when it starts growling and says, I need food. We're, we're slaves. We're slaves, but... The good news is we get to choose our master. 
We can choose either Satan as our master and unrighteousness, or as Paul says, you can choose God as your master and obey him as slaves. We are slaves. You can't get away from that. But you can choose who your master is, whether it's the good Lord or uh, flesh and Satan. So he says, which one are you going to choose? Are you going to choose sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness? But, verse 7 tells us, God bethink that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. He said, you were slaves to sin, and yet you obeyed that little bit of faith that God provided to you to recognize that you are a sinner and need salvation. He said, God gave you that and allowed you to obey and be delivered from this. And now, verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. That's a good thing. That's not a bad thing in slavery. It's a beautiful thing as we're slaves to righteousness. And then in verse 19, it says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, now, so now, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. You see, one of the issues we come up with when we start to say, okay, I have a new identity in Christ. My old man was crucified. I am no longer required to listen to Satan and sin. But I kind of like sin. I kind of like it. And so I end up kind of dabbling in it. And what Paul is saying, just you have to be really careful, Christian, because as as you're starting to, to dabble, it says, it will just ensnare you and drag you down and you will become enslaved by the very thing you think, oh, it's, it's just a little thing over here. It's like, no, Christian, just know whatever you submit yourselves to, whatever you're obeying, you're going to become slaves to that. So, oh yeah, maybe sin feels okay. Maybe I've got this thing under control. But you know as well as I do, it quickly goes out of control. And you, you and I are not strong enough We need to just say, enough of that. Let's just be and present ourselves and follow after righteousness. As Paul says, just like you were slaves to sinfulness and you just did whatever was came came natural to your flesh, he says, I want you to just see yourselves as being those who are slaves to to righteousness and doing right things. I I have to. I have to do the right thing because I'm a slave to God. I, I just have to. It's just part of me now. And just doing that, because we desire to be slaves to righteousness and to be under God as a parent that's there. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You're like, uh, if something's right or whatever, I don't care. I'm just going to do whatever I want as long as I can get away with it. We were free in regard to righteousness. I didn't need to do anything right. Verse 21. But what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed. He's like, what, what happened? For the end of those things is death. So just, just take a look and, and think about when you were slaves to unrighteousness and, and doing these things. What kind of fruit did it produce? Did it produce good fruit or did it produce fruit that led to death? Death in relationships, death in various 
things that happen in your life and you realize, man, I, that was really stupid. I've got a, quite a few of those in my I look back at my life, that was really dumb. I, wow, that was really stupid. And you realize the, the fruit that comes from that. And Paul says, know those things, learn from those things. But when you produce good fruit, when you are slaves to righteousness, how much good fruit comes from that as he continues on there in verse 22. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. You know, in Galatians it says, whatever you sow, do not be deceived, whatever you sow, that you will reap. When you're sowing to unrighteousness, you'll reap unrighteousness. When you sow into righteousness, you'll reap righteousness. He says, when you put yourself as slaves to God, you will have fruit of holiness and in the end, everlasting life. And remember, everlasting life, as John chapter 17 tells us, is not just long life. Everlasting life is this, to know the Father and him who sent, him who he sent. To have that relationship and close relationship with God. When you are slaves to God, when you obey in obedience, the fruit in the end is a closer relationship with God. And we get closer to God. He says there, finally, in that, that famous verse in 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. How many of you have heard that, you know, Romans Road, Preach to the unbeliever. And there's nothing wrong with that. I still believe that that's a good stepping stone for the... But is this talking to the believer or the unbeliever? It's to the believer. He says, he's talking to those who are sancti- are justified. And now you're walking in Christ. He says, but you know what? The wages of sin, if you allow sin and you dabble with sin, and you're still slaves to sin, it leads to death in your life. There's still consequences. Oh, you're justified. You are righteous before God. You are not condemned. But there's still sin that leads to death. Remember that that stepping stone that that Paul talked about in chapter 5. It was the sin leads to death. It leads to condemnation. When we're justified, we do not have condemnation, as we will see in chapter 8. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is still sin in our lives that leads to death in our lives of different things that happen. Not condemnation. So he says the wages of sin, the payment, the just payment for sin is death in our life. But the gift of God is eternal or or closeness with God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we walk and desire to be slaves to God, a relationship begins to build more and more. Now I talked about before that chapter 5 talks about justification. Chapter 6 talks about sanctification. I didn't tell you that chapter 7 talks about this idea of liberation that we are liberated from the, the, the bondage and things of sin. And then chapter 8 is going to talk about sanctification. Oftentimes, we talk about justification, sanctification. We kind of don't mention specifically liberation, the freedom that we have in Christ. And then, of course, 8 is sanctification. So now in chapter 7, we'll continue on with the no's, but the focus is on liberation more so than sanctification. He says in verse 1, Or do you not know? So this is the fourth know that we should have in our heads. Brethren, and he's speaking specifically, as he says here, for I speak to those who know the law. He's speaking generally to the Jewish believers at that time, but we can still take it to heart. He says that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So this fourth know is to know that we're delivered from the law. Okay, And he's going to go into details about this. 
to know that we're delivered from the law, that the law isn't sitting over us night and day condemning us, but we are free from that and it's not looming over us. All things, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, all things are lawful for me. All things. But not all things are profitable. Not all things are are expedient. Not all things are good. Some things cause people to stumble. So I'm going to choose those things. But the law is not hanging over my head ready to pounce down on me. He says, Do you not know, brethren, I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For, and he starts to give an example, picturing marriage here, talking about the law and how we were married to the law before. And it says in verse 2, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Now remember, in Jewish culture, the man had a right for divorce under certain circumstances, but nothing in the law spoke about how a woman could be divorced. And you can argue all sorts of things about that. But And God does haste divorce and doesn't want it in either case. But Paul is pointing this out. He says, this woman who has a husband is bound to that husband, and he's pointing to that husband is the law. And we are married to that. When we are born into sin, it is condemning us. It is there. We're married to it. It is a tough taskmaster. We're slaves to it, and we can't get out. There's no hope. We can't divorce it. We can't get out of it. There's only one way out, and that is if the husband dies. And you're not allowed to kill them, by the way. <laughs> like That's the first thing. Oh, that, that's a different issue. That's murder, and that's a problem. But And the law is perfect, as he talks about here. It's perfect. Imagine having a spouse that's perfect. You know, I, I have a spouse that's perfect, of course, you know, in case she listens to this. But, you know, imagine that perfect spouse, that everything is perfect and right all the time. How that would just bug you. Well, that's what the law is. The law is perfect. And, and it's always there. Every time you're a little bit out of line, just, oh, yeah, you're right again. Oh, you're right again. Oh, oh. And it just drive you crazy, right? Oh, how do I get out of this marriage of the law? And he says, you can't get out unless one of you dies. And then you can get out. And here's where he starts to show us the solution. He's like, the law is not going to die, but there's another way out. He talks about this, this, this idea of being in this marriage you can't get out of. So, verse 3, if, then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no longer an adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. He says, here's a solution. All you have to do is die to self. Just die. And you are now out of that marriage, that marriage bondage of that, that perfect spouse that's telling you everything you do wrong, everything. It's like you've now died. Have you ever tried to take someone to court who has died? 
oh, you know, that, that person, uh, you know, there was a murder that happened, but the person's dead. You, you can't very well take him to court. You can't, you can't accuse them of anything. They're dead. And so it says, you're dead. So now when you go to marry another, it's legal. So you're allowed to marry another if you die. Now, that doesn't work in the physical. Just don't even try that. But, you know, in, in the spiritual realm, you've died with Christ, as he mentioned before. So now under the law, you're allowed to and, and legal to marry another. You marry Christ, and now Christ's grace is the one you're married to that says, oh, I messed up. And God says, but my grace covers all of your sins. My grace, my grace, my grace. And that's what I hear instead of, you messed up again, you messed up again, you messed up again. And as a believer, as we start to realize that, as Paul wants you to get that in our heads and know that to be true, the law is not hanging over us. Oh, I messed up again. Oh, because you will never make it. <laughs> You're gonna, you can try as hard as you can. That law is just going to condemn you and condemn you. He's like, you're not married to that anymore. Don't even let that law even bother you anymore. As Jeremiah talks about, there's a new covenant, a new law that's written on our minds and our hearts as God just works through us and all things are lawful and he's going to be just working on us in sanctification that we're free from these things. Ah, ah the old legalist spouse is gone. I can just live in that freedom and it's so freeing to understand that. Not so that we can go live in sin as Paul says, but free, knowing that that condemnation that comes from being married to the law is no longer there. And in verse 5, it talks about when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused by the law. It's like when you, when you see the sign that says, stay off the grass, you kind of want to just go and step on the grass, right? It, it, the law, it, the things you're told not to do are the very things you want to do. And he says that it arouses, it's like, just get rid of it. You don't even have to sit there and worry about it because what happens? You always, oh, I, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't do that. And it makes you want to do it even more. It's just such a struggle. It's like, just let it go. Just don't even be thinking about the law. Just allow God to do a work and guide you and walk with him. And you'll find that you're doing more than you would have if you would have set a bunch of rules and regulations over yourself. And that's also, it, it creeps in, doesn't it? It's, it's the church kind of does that, and we do it to ourselves as we say, well, you know, I want to do the right thing, and, and so I want to make sure I, I get up at 6 in the morning, and I do my devotions, and I do this, and, and, and we start to set up these our own laws that we make up for ourselves, and where we might put on others. And what does that start to do? Not only does it affect us, and we get angry at ourselves for not doing it, and we feel guilty and all this, but then we start looking at others, uh, Oh, do you guys uh, get up and do your devotions? And oh, I noticed that you guys weren't at church this week. And oh, and we're also condemning others. It just happens as we start to put rules and regulations on ourselves. We then start to do what the Bible tells us is unwise: compare ourselves amongst ourselves and and start checking other people out and see how your rules and regulations. It's a terrible trap that we fall into. He's like, you're not married to the, that anymore. You don't have to worry about the law. You are free. And when someone else is free in some area. Allow them to be free in that area. It's not yours. It's not your business. Allow God to do that work in their life. Oh, did you see, they went and saw that PG movie, and I think there was a little bit of a problem with that. Just let it go. Don't, don't put a law on other people, because those laws arouse the, the desires of our hearts. He says, but, in verse 6, now we've been delivered from the law, having died. 
of what used to hold us so that we should serve in the newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. That's talking about Jeremiah chapter 31. It's this new covenant. We're in the spirit. The spirit lives in us. And if the spirit is alive and well in you, when you're in the word and you're studying, and you, it, it just comes natural. You don't have to know the letter of the law and all these kind of things. It's just going to come natural as the spirit does his work in you. If you're busy doing good things, the Spirit's leading, you don't have time to do the bad things. It's good. And then verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. And now Paul's going to just deal a little bit with uh, uh, someone before, and talking about Paul himself, before he became a believer and the purpose of the law. He says the law is still good. It's perfect. He says certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known. That's a past tense. Paul says, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but When the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Paul in his discussions here kind of gets opens up uh, you know, his, his life a little bit, and he says, the law is good. You know, it, until I, I saw the law and I realized the law, I didn't realize how bad I was. And, and when Paul talks about covetousness, he says, until I, I read that thou shalt not covet, I, I didn't know that covetousness was bad. Now, picture in your mind Paul, the Pharisee among Pharisees, Sanhedrin. This guy, do you, do you picture him coveting like, Oh, I'd really like that house over there. Wow, that's a cool car. No. What was Paul's issue? Paul's issue was he was coveting that, that, that closeness, that, that to be on the spiritual ladder. He wanted to be known as the Pharisee among Pharisees, the, the Holy One. He was the, he was studying harder than anyone else. He was doing more. He was keeping the law more. And, and he realized, wait a second, the, the purpose for me doing this is to, to look holy or to, to be something and, and to impress God or impress other people. I'm coveting a position of authority and a, a position of holiness before God, and I'm coveting that. All the things he was doing might be right, but he realized as he studies the law more and more, his sinfulness becomes more and more evident. And he realizes, ah, I'm never going to attain it. He said, the thing I thought would bring me life just brought me more death as he realized how bad he was. And that's the good thing about the, the word and, and how the law teaches us before justification that we're sinful, heavily sinful. And even as we're believers and we study and we realize, oh, may grace abound more as we just worship God and say, thank you, God. I didn't realize how bad a sinner I was. And I read this and I realized how I'm, I'm bad here and bad here and bad here. Oh, Oh, wretched man that I am, as Paul will get to that point. But it's good for us to also realize that. 
But that idea of covetousness isn't just about wanting things that other people have. It can be covetousness for good things in a bad way. I was thinking about that in the terms of Paul, and it's such an easy thing, especially for teachers and pastors to fall into, right? And I, I, I remember when I first started doing the, the Epping studies, and I had some studies online, and I don't know, about a year passed, and I glanced at the website, and I said, wow, there's like 80 people a week downloading my sermons and listening to them. Man, I guess the word's really getting out. Yeah, look at that. And then I realized there was a mistake in my programming of the website. <laughs> and that there's this thing you can set up, you know, robots and things where computers will scan your site and hit links and things like that. You have to turn on and off certain things. And, and so a bunch of computers were listening to my sermons, right? And then when, once I fixed that, I realized the big goose egg kept coming up. I'm like, oh, okay, well, there you go. <laughs> but I find, you find yourself saying, oh, well, you know. And, and it's easy to kind of fall into that trap. Is, and there's nothing wrong with encouragement. But I would encourage you to, when you encourage a pastor, when you say, God really spoke to me in this way and what you said, that, that's fine. But wow, your words, they're like a God. You're such a, a great orator. And well, well, what happened to Herod when that, you know, that did not turn out so good when they were saying that about him and, and he didn't give glory to God. So it's okay to encourage a pastor and things. But, and, and it is really encouraging to know that God speaks to you as he speaks to me. But be careful in that. I, I was at camp this week, and uh, with 100 kids, uh, you're bound to get a bit of sickness, so Tina and Silas weren't, weren't uh, able to make it. They're a little under the weather, but it was a beautiful time of camp. They're primary kids, and, and just seeing them, and several of them had given their life to Christ, and just seeing a, a great work happen, and the, the leaders, I love working with the leaders because they're you know these teenage and early college kids, and just pouring into their lives and seeing them grow is really spectacular. And on the last day, uh, there was a couple of girls from the cabin, they're, you know, primary girls. They had accepted Christ and, and they went and got Bibles and, and they had them signed by their leader and they were coming out on the little patio and I said, hey, that's wonderful. You've accepted Christ and, and you got Bibles. Here, let me show you a couple things. So I, I showed them the Bible and I, I show them where some things are and I say, hey, look, the book of John. I, I particularly like that one. You know, my name's John and all this. And I start to break down the Bible a bit and show them where the letters are and where they can start and how they can read through and understand these things. I don't know. I'm 10 minutes into this this conversation and one of the girls looks at me and says wait a second you're that guy that's been teaching every morning aren't you i'm like yeah uh, i mean is, is this microphone on i mean it's like i realized there was absolutely and it kind of made me realize there was nothing i did or said that led them to christ you know, i was just there i was a puppet they didn't even know i was there but i don't know it was a leader in the small group or whatever led them to christ I had nothing to do with it. And it was a really good reminder. That it's like, God did it. And God changed their lives. But, but that's a good thing for uh, you know, pastors and things because it's easy to fall into this trap, as Paul does, as for a good reason or a good thing. I want to be closer to God in that. It can also be covetousness or being good at things uh, for the wrong reasons. And so he uses that as an example for himself. The law is so good. It shows us that we need a Savior and also shows us our sinfulness. And then he continues there in verse 13. He says, Has then what is good become death to me? Now, this idea of the law, is it, is it now death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become 
exceedingly sinful. And then, so he talks about this, and he, he's just going over this and, and just making sure we understand that we're delivered from the law, but he has this little section here talking about how the law is still important. And then he begins to talk, talk, talk about the fifth no in verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. He says, so we should know that the Bible, the law, these things are, the law is spiritual, but we're still fleshly. We're still carnal. We still are sold under sin. We still have the carnal flesh living in us, or we have it dragging with us. And we do not need to live by the flesh, but we can live by the spirit. So we have this law, the spiritual, but we're still carnal. Verse 15, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And Paul's going to continue on this whole idea. It's like, okay, I will to do what I... And it's kind of confusing. It's like, he's just saying, man, I find myself just doing stuff that I really don't want to do. I mean, I, I want to do it. My flesh does. But I really don't want to do it. And I find myself doing it. And then I don't do it. And, and I don't want to do it. But I find... And he's kind of struggling with that. And we have to understand there's a difference between dabbling in sin and desiring for that sin and falling into sin things and, and looking back and just being, you know, oh man, I, I just help us to understand when we do things that we know are wrong. Help us to say, oh, that's not me. That's not me that did that. That's the sin that dwells in me. That's not me. I'm a new creation in Christ. That's not me. And help us to not confuse that. And, and not as an excuse and say, well, that, that's not really me. But just understand in the forgiveness there, that's not me. However, if we're desiring for that sin and we're wanting it more, let me ask you this. In that, that, that sin that might so easily beset you. That, that things that you struggle with and, I don't know, you know, anger or whatever. The thing that's there, if you could, right now, snap your fingers and it not be a problem in your life again. Just gone. Never a problem. Done. Would you? I hope the answer is yes. Because if the answer is yes, you're like Paul. You're like, oh, oh. That's not me. That's the sin who dwells in me, and, and that's not me. This is me, a new creation in Christ. Help me, Lord. Help me. Help me. Because that's those things that God uses just to work in us and, and to keep us humble and realizing who we are as, as just fumbling through this. We have to realize that. If, however, you say, no, I don't think I would snap my fingers. I think I like that. <laughs> then we have to be very, very careful because that's the carnality that we're allowing to grow. Now, here's the key. Listen carefully. Verse 18. Not only do we know that we are carnal, that we have this flesh, and that 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 is not really us, but verse 18, for I know, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, 
nothing good dwells. It doesn't say some good things dwell. Nothing good. That means that if you do something good, it's not you, your flesh. And if you do something bad, that's your flesh. But help us to, because I like to think that some of the, I'm pretty good. God's working on me. I'm pretty good. No. Every good word I say, every nice thing I say, every good thing I do is from the Lord, not from me, not from my flesh. We separate that. We realize that the bad things that we say and do, that's the flesh. Every good thing is from the Lord. And we just thank the Lord. And we can look back and not take any credit for it. Because any good thing I do is from the Lord. And praise the Lord. He's doing something good. I said something nice to somebody. Wow. That must be the Lord. Because the Bible tells me there's nothing good in my flesh. There's nothing good in me. So it's just of the Lord that I said the right thing. That I did the good things. And it keeps us humble. It helps us realize that it's Christ working in us. And the sanctification process. When we do look back and we see that good things have come out of our lives... It's not because of us. It's not because of my flesh, but because of what the Lord is doing in us. And know this, that in the flesh nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. And take special note of that. He is unable to find how to do anything good. And that's what I struggle with. I try to find out how to do something good. Keep that in the back of your mind. Verse 19. And, and Paul's going to go on this whole dissertation of, of talking about, uh, you know, how he struggles. This, this wrestling match that is happening in his life. And I appreciate that, knowing that Paul wrestles just like you and I do. He says in verse 9, For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. We just recognize that's that sin that's there that's causing me to do these things. And then in verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me. The one who wills to do good For I delight in the law of God, according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he says in verse 24, O wretched man that I am. And then, rather than allowing us to get to the end of the uh, verse 25 there, which is where it naturally would flow, it's almost like he can't stop but answer the question he just posed. Because he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes back and says, So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. This warring battle that happens. But you notice he asks, who will deliver me from this, from this evil? Who will deliver me this body of death? I mean, we've got this body. It's dying. It's dead. It just doesn't know it yet. It's just, we're dragging it along. 
And every bad thing that happens is just because a stupid flesh is there. And, and he says, and he said earlier, he said, how can I perform good? How do I do it? How do I do it? And what's interesting, and if I've lost you, if you've heard everything I've said and missed this next point, you've missed it all. If you've completely not listened to me all the way up to this point, but listened to this last moment, then you're going to get the whole thing. I should have told you that at the beginning, right? So you could have slept. This is so important because I just told you how, didn't I? I said, don't worry about the nose. Do the nose. And it's so easy for us to sit there and say, okay, remember, I, uh, I'm a new I, I have a new life in Christ, a new identity. I'm now, okay, know that, and, and know that my old body is gone, and know that I'm slave to sin. I know, okay, all right, I'm ready. All right, let's go into the world. I'm ready now. And I've just showed you how. And Paul's like, I, I struggle with the how. I can't. And then he says, then he goes, who will deliver me? And we start to realize that the more we do the how, and we try to come up with the ABCs and the the six keys to a Christian walk, we're going to fall off flat on our face. And it's not about that. It's the who. It's the who. And it's Jesus Christ. He says, wretched man, who's going to deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ. It's not a procedure. It's not a program. It's not principles. It's a person of Jesus Christ. And so what we do, it's fine. We learn these things. It's good to study and know these things to be true. But when we rely on knowing those things, when we rely on that, all we're doing is setting up a new set of laws for ourselves. We're like, oh, I forgot. I have to, I have to remember this and know this and know this. And we just set up a new set of rules that we're going to fail because we just set up another set of law that's going to condemn us. It's good to study. It's good to know these things. But know this over all the things. It's Jesus who's going to do the work. And he's the one as we allow him to do that work. And we just surrender, oh, wretched man that I am, oh, wretched woman that we are, oh, oh help me. And Jesus will say, okay, I'm going to help you here. I'm going to give you that good word to say. Help us not to say, well, hey, I wasn't so bad after all. There's nothing good in you. Every good thing is from the Lord. Every good word you say, every nice deed you do, everything that you have in your mind that's a good thought is from the Lord. And we rely on that as ultimately our strength, not by our own strength and power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Then, okay, so I don't have to remember the six steps that John told me to know this and then I'll be free and everything will be great. You just rely more on Jesus. Keep studying to show yourself approved, but rely on Jesus. Now, I did not do justice on chapter 6 and chapter 7 there on sanctification. Study it yourself. Go through. I could have easily spent 10 weeks on that. It's so important, but I want to get a high level of just knowing what God wants to do as a work in our lives and trusting in Jesus so that we can get to that glorious chapter 18 next week, or 8 next week, as we see the glorification, the plan that God has for us. And let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you are a God who does give us your word and has given us a brain to know these things and to study these things and to know the truths. But Lord, ultimately, it's all your work. 
All we can do is raise up our arms and surrender ourselves to you. Help us to know that we have a new identity in you. Thank you for choosing us and allowing us through your grace to become sons and daughters of you, sons and daughters of God. And you are a God that's such a great master. When I think of slavery, I think of that bond servant, that that willing servant, as we see you are such a good master that we desire to be under your leadership as you are so gentle with us as we fail so often. And, And Lord, help us not to, when we fail, just to condemn ourselves. We're so oftentimes very hard on ourselves as we set expectations for ourselves. Help us to realize when we fail that <laughs> it's, it's no surprise. No surprise to you. You didn't go up there and say, Gabriel, do you see that? I, I'm shocked that John messed up again. You're, you're not surprised. It's my flesh. It's the sin that's in me. But the good works that you do in my life, Lord, help me just to recognize that you are doing a good work and that there are good things coming out of me and my life, but they're all from you. There's nothing good that dwells in me. And help us to surrender to you every day and to recognize that you are doing that work. And Lord, it's good for us to be in the word every morning and then to pray and to be in fellowship and be in church regularly and, and do all these things. But help us never to fall into the trap of legalism, to think that somehow if we aren't doing those things or if you lead us to do something else, that somehow you love us less or you're not doing a work in our lives. So we surrender ourselves to you. We ask you to do that work. Set us aside as holy instruments for your work. Give us opportunity to share the good news, the gospel with those around us and help us to do and share the the good works to those that we're in contact with today and this week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.